Good afternoon and welcome to the 168th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion with Alex J. Goldstein, the creator of Faces of COVID. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 12th, 2020, there are 1,289,474 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there are 10,488,531 cases in the United States, up from 10,353,604 cases reported yesterday. There are now a total of 242,310 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 240,688 cases yesterday. Just an astounding and depressing increase in infection rates and numbers of deaths right now. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, he saved lives during World War II. He died of COVID-19, trying to be at his wife's deathbed. This is by Merrill Cornfield and appeared May 12th in the Washington Post. Dodging bombs and bullets and surrounded by German enemy soldiers, 19-year-old U.S. Army Private Daniel Zane had one purpose in mind as he bolted 80 yards through an open field on March 2nd, 1945. A fellow soldier was hurt. Zane carried the injured man to safety, an act of heroism that earned him a bronze star. A long lifetime later, 94-year-old Zane was again unfaltering, never leaving his wife Valerie Zane's bedside during the past year and a half as she neared the end of her seven-year battle with Parkinson's disease and dementia in March. As the novel coronavirus pummeled nursing homes in the United States, Valerie Zane's nursing unit in Haverford, Pennsylvania hadn't yet had any cases, but decided to close its doors to visitors. To continue to see her, he moved out of his independent living apartment and into a skilled nursing room below her hospice room, and he stayed even after a nurse there tested positive for the virus. Daniel Zane did not want his wife of 71 years to die alone. Weeks after he moved in, Daniel Zane became fatigued and had trouble breathing. He was taken to a hospital. On April 15th, the day after his test came back positive for COVID-19, Valerie Zane died. Daniel Zane was already unresponsive. He died two days later. He was someone whose loyalty to others, and in this case to his partner, made him put his own interests and comfort out of his mind in order to do what he thought was the right thing, said Zane's son-in-law, Stuart Charmé. He decided his role was beside his wife, and he wasn't leaving under any circumstances. 
Choosing to stay by his wife's bedside was a significant risk, given that nearly one in 10 nursing homes in the United States has reported a case of the virus. This was reported back in May. The virus that has swept the globe has particularly affected people older than 65 with a greater risk of serious illness or death. From the virus, the greatest generation is vanishing, taking with it stories of the Great Depression and World War II. Since 2015, the number of living World War II veterans has plummeted from about 993,000 to a third of that in 2020, according to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Like Zane, most of these veterans are in their 90s and could be at greater risk of becoming infected by the coronavirus, especially if they have underlying conditions or are living in a hotspot. A year and a half ago, the Zanes moved from their home in White Plains, New York, to the assisted living community to provide better care to Valerie Zane and be closer to one of their daughters, Nancy Zane, and son-in-law, Charmé. Daniel Zane spent his waking minutes of that time doting on Valerie Zane, his family said. Although he lived in an independent living apartment up until their last few weeks, he was at her bedside every morning until she went to sleep at night. He fed her, wheeled her chair around the facility, and made sure she was comfortable. He was making sure she wasn't alone, Nancy Zane said. He was right there with her. The New York couple married in their 20s and had two daughters, Nancy and Robin Zane. Daniel Zane was originally born and raised in New York City. He went to Lehigh University at age 16. He then served in World War II. After the war, he attended Fordham Law School and was a real estate attorney until his recent retirement. Daniel Zane had his own law firm for about six decades. Valerie Zane did administrative work in doctor's offices for three decades. Her family says she was a master at playing bridge. The couple also enjoyed traveling, reading newspapers, and talking to their four grandchildren. Daniel Zane was particularly passionate about sharing his 60 years of legal knowledge with his granddaughter, Talia Charmé Zane, who is in her first year of law school. When Charmé Zane looked at the audience at her mock trial tournaments, there was her grandfather, she said. He gave her a book by U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen G. Breyer and wrote inside the cover that he hoped it would be the first of many in her law library. When she needed to phone a friend in law school, Daniel Zane faithfully answered. He was always reliable, she said, always there. Denied a diploma, April Dunn made sure other students with disabilities had options. She died of COVID-19. That's another story in this series posted in the Washington Post. Another constant throughout his life was Daniel Zane's eagerness to share stories of his time serving in World War II. He told his family about how he fought in the decisive Battle of the Bulge and the time he liberated a concentration camp. One of the few treasures his family has left from that time is a yellowed military document written in black typewriter ink that recalls the heroic feat from 1945 when he rescued his injured comrade on the battlefield. He earned a bronze star for that deed, and his family says one or two more for other heroic acts. Aside from the document and a few photos, his tales are all they have left of a significant part of American history, his family fears. I know he was one of the few World War II veterans who were left, his daughter Robin Zane said, and it worries me in terms of lost history on a very personal level. She said the memory of major historical events is under threat with the loss of her father's generation. There will come a time when people will say World War II didn't happen or the concentration camps didn't happen, Robin Zane said. He showed me pictures of a concentration camp he liberated when I was a little girl, and now it feels like a dream, but I know it happened. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation 
for today and introduce my guest. Alex Goldstein created Faces of COVID in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic as a means of lifting up the stories behind the statistics of those lost to COVID and affirming their dignity and holding our government leaders accountable for our failures to adequately respond to the pandemic. Goldstein is currently CEO of the strategic communications firm 90 West, which he founded in 2016 to better serve companies, organizations, and leaders that are making a positive impact on the world with a focus on equity, economic mobility, and the climate crisis. Prior to founding 90 West, Alex served for eight years in numerous key leadership roles with former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, including as senior advisor and executive director of Governor Patrick's political committee, as press secretary and spokesman for the Patrick Murray administration from 2011 to 12, and as press secretary on Governor Patrick's successful 2010 re-election campaign. Most recently, Alex served as the senior communications advisor and spokesman for Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's historic and successful campaign for Massachusetts' seventh congressional district. Alex Goldstein, thank you so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Appreciate it. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Sure. Uh, I'm calling in from Waltham, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, it's starting to get pretty scary here again. Um, We had a really extended period of having leveled off after March and April, and uh, we're sort of headed back in that direction. We had about a 50% increase in cases just week over week from yesterday to the week before, and hospitals are starting to get another influx of hospitalizations. So um, this is definitely uh, having a little bit of a feeling of history repeating itself here. You know, especially in New England, and I'm in New Jersey, places that were hit hard early on in the spring and then bent the curve. I worry that it's going to be hard for people to readapt, to go back into that kind of, um, you know, real shelter in place that was going on in the late spring. Do you have indications there people are going to be willing to do that? You know, I think that the psychology of this has been that a lot of folks really sort of steeled themselves for a couple months of this um, and they really retreated and they did everything they could. And then once we got through three months and four months and it was still here, um, that I think people's, you know, struggling with all different types of issues, psychological issues, mental health issues of just feeling isolated. Uh, plus it was summer. I think there was a natural inclination to step outside a little bit. Um, and maybe folks began to let their guard down. I will tell you that from the position I've been in, um, you know, running the face of the COVID account, I think it's safe to say that, the, you know, when you're reading 20 obituaries a day, um, you're pretty reminded on a daily basis that the thing is still here. Um, but I do think that the way the ebb and flows worked across the country, that there's certainly uh, different communities that when things got quieter, people felt like it was the all clear and it obviously was not. It's uh, I've been trying to keep an eye also on the you. I'm sure you remember early, early days. There were health professionals, nurses, doctors, essential workers coming from other parts of the country to come to the northeast and help out. And there's been that reverse flow. And now we may see it again. It's because it's this kind of a 50 state pandemic. We have this odd experience where the essential workers are seeming to be needed at various different hotspots all over the country. Yeah. Although I say what seems to be the case this time around is that uh, it's everywhere now. Right. I don't think anybody is truly immune from this. I know Vermont has been a holdout um, here in New England, but I think that's 
uh, even that may change. And, you know, the, that's a scary thing because when we all get overwhelmed at once, there's no one to call for help. And uh, I think that this is weighing pretty heavily on my friends in the healthcare field right now, which is there's no one to call. Um, you know, this is, we're going to have to be able to ride this one out on our own. And uh, that's a scary thought. Well, I want to ask you in detail all about Faces of COVID. Before we get there, I kind of want a little bit of your backstory. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your background in government and in, in politics. Sure. Yeah, so uh, I, my entry into politics actually began in my senior year of college. I was a senior at Brandeis University, and I was trying to decide between a career in journalism or a career in politics. And I'd actually applied for a job as a sports writer at the Boston Globe at the same time that I was simultaneously volunteering on a campaign for this guy who was running for governor of Massachusetts that nobody had ever heard of. And I was, you know, stuffing envelopes and filling out spreadsheets. And, um, you know, the crazy thing about politics is that it can become a real vortex. And as you know, it moves quick and mobility within um, political campaigns uh, is significant. And so by the end of the campaign, uh, suddenly folks did know who we were. And this was 2006 and Governor Patrick won. And um, he was the uh, first black governor in Massachusetts history, the second popularly elected black governor in the history of the country. And the uh, really sort of vaulted me into this world that I didn't know much about. My first job in politics was as a grassroots field organizer, which I think is important because I look back at my career and it's probably the job that taught me how to talk to people. Because when you're knocking on people's door, trying to ask them who they're gonna vote for and get them to sign up, it's not really the most pleasant conversation many of the times. And if folks are watching who've been canvassers before, you know, these exchanges are not always uh, super warm. And so if you can figure out how to talk to somebody from the other party on their doorstep when they really are trying to have their dinner and not talk to you, um, I think you learn a lot of things about what persuades people and what people connect with and what they emotionally um, connect with. And so I went on to have a career in communications. I was the governor's spokesman, as you mentioned, um, for many years. And you know, working with him, I think, has had a big impact um, also on this project. Um, you know, it, Governor Patrick used to have a saying that politics only matters at the point where it touches people, right? And policy only matters at the point where it touches people. So we would release a, bu a budget with these big line items, but there's people behind those line items. And when you give people big abstract statistics and you fail to show the living, breathing person behind those decisions, um, behind those numbers, I think it uh, does a disservice to empathetic policy. And that's something that I've been really passionate about in politics I'd say it's instilled in me. And with Congresswoman Presley, it's the same story. She's somebody that I think was uniquely suited to be able to center the lived experiences of real people in her storytelling. And, you know, I, I learned quite a bit from both of their example uh, over the years around storytelling. Yeah, I wanted to follow up with you about that because, and it's interesting too, you shared that you were thinking about being a journalist, you're in communication and a sports writer, particularly, and good sports writing is, is, really good at sort of taking you in side personal stories, I think. Um, you know, there's, we're at a period of maximum cynicism in my lifetime, certainly, about politics. But I just wanted to underline this for a second, and I, and I don't think this is a partisan issue. Successful politicians are really good at listening to people. They're collectors of stories. I think. And it's easy maybe to get a little jaded about that. But I, I wanted to get you to reflect a little bit more about that in your time and working with the governor, working with the congresswoman. 
just how those stories kind of get stuck in your head, because that seems to be maybe a pathway to understand your commitment right now to faces of COVID. Yeah, and I, I would actually go a step further and say that being able to listen and take in stories and really hear people and see them is not just a strategy for winning elections. It's actually a strategy for good policy and for good governing, right? I've been asking myself every single day of this pandemic, what would it look like if every single member of Congress from both parties and every single governor and every single mayor in this country had to be required to do one thing, which is for one hour, sit across and listen and look into the eyes and hear the voices of one family who has lost somebody to COVID-19. How might that change the way in which they approach policy and mask mandates and all of these things just by listening? Because I would argue that there's probably a significant percentage of those folks who have never done that yet in eight months of this pandemic. There's a story I think about a lot from 2010. Um, I was uh, the, the Governor Patrick was seeking his second term and we were in the throes of the economic recession and things were pretty bleak. He was actually, uh, he would say this, so he won't be embarrassed that I'm mentioning this, but he was the least popular governor in America. He was like very, very low. And part of that was because we had really not done a great job telling our story. And um, we were at this really interesting juncture where we had, you'll recall the Recovery Act, the stimulus, the big stimulus in 2010. Sure, sure. And, you, it was sort of a, it reminds me a little bit of some of the conversations we're having now in which there was, it quickly became very political about providing stimulus aid to the American people. And the conversation was, this is a larded, you know, throw, it, it's, it's uh, a junket, it's not real, like the money's being wasted. Um, and then on the other side, you have people saying, no, this is real money to get me employed and to get me training. And I remember somebody in the governor's office had handed me a, a press release that we were supposed to put out. And the press release said that they had done a study that 24,000 people in Massachusetts had gotten a job because of the stimulus. And they were really excited to put it out. It was a success story. And my immediate reaction was, no one is going to believe this. It may be, I believe that it's true. I believe it's true. But we're in the worst moment of the recession with the highest unemployment in decades in Massachusetts. And you're going to put out a press release that says 24,000 people got a job. If you're the person who's unemployed at the end of that press release and you read that, you're gonna not trust a word we say for the rest mm -hmm. of ours, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we did is I said, what if we actually found one person who got a job from the stimulus and let's tell their story. And that's exactly what we did. And we ended up finding folks who had been employed uh, because of the, uh, the stimulus. And we were able to do individual storytelling in a much more powerful way about what the power of government assistance was in that moment to get people through that. That's such a, a crucial insight. And I, I really like your idea too of uh, every elected official across the country uh, being brought into the process of telling the stories, naming the names, telling the lives. I did some quick back of the envelope math. Uh, I'm a historian, so I probably wasn't as accurate as I could have been, but um, just based on the numbers a couple of weeks ago, I calculated that if we had hearings, which I think we should, and if you de dedicated an hour to everyone who died of COVID-19, um, it'd be a 27-year-long congressional hearing. <laughs> uh, and I, I think that's probably not realistic. But even the thought experiment, to me, is an important one because there's so many ways to come at the scale of this. And that's that, that balance that I think you strike really well, which is, I mean, you're tweeting 
constantly. Faces of COVID is is giving us these stories, and, and there's a lot of them. But if you take the time to even choose one or two a week, you get pulled into them and you discover the humanity of it. And you know, I do that on COVID calls. I read the statistics every day. Um, and I think for some people that's really important to ground them, but then I try to match that with the, with the obituary and the, the two together seems to be an important um, formula. So I guess with that, I, I'd like to just hear a little bit more about how, how'd you come up with the idea for this faces of COVID? Sure. Yeah. In the, uh, so I think like a lot of folks in the first couple of weeks um, of the pandemic, as things really started to escalate in a scary way, you know, I would be consuming doom scrolling on Twitter, watching, um, you know, CNN or whatever. And I'm seeing these numbers and I found myself really struggling to comprehend the enormity of sort of the history that was being made right now. And almost even in the early days when we were all still very glued and plugged in and scared of it, um, feeling like I was getting almost numbed out to what was happening. And um, initially, sort of for my own catharsis, I sought to do a little research and see if I could, if I was curious at the outset whether stories were being written regularly about individual people. And what I found was the answer was absolutely yes. And it was overwhelmingly happening at the local level with local journalists who so oftentimes have been like on the leading edge of preserving democracy and keeping people informed, even at a time when their industry itself is being sort of strangled of resources, which is a really challenging uh, dynamic right now in that the people who have the biggest burden of telling stories of people lost to COVID are also those who are having the least resources to tell those stories, um, something that I've been really struggling with throughout this. But uh, yeah, so initially I was doing it just because I was finding them and I was putting them on my personal feed. And at one point I was doing it so much that I said to myself, you know, I actually think I need to give people who follow me the choice to opt into this, right? To it's a lot um, to be seeing day in and day out. And it's, I think there's people that sort of plug in and then unplug from time to time because it is so much, which I, I totally understand. And so that's when I decided to create the new account, which I did um, at the end of March. And it's gone, you know, we've posted just about every single day now for eight months. And, um, you know, the I really was moved by three things. The first was to uh, put a face and a name and a story to the statistics so that they're a little less cold and a little more real to people. Um, the second was to uh, really make sure that we we're holding our leaders accountable. And at that point, the extent of the mismanagement was probably not even quite what we could have imagined, um, but we're starting to see some real threads of it just in the lead up to it. And as far as I see it, every single story of somebody who dies of COVID-19, every single story I've shared, the 3,500 stories I've shared in eight months, is asking that question. Did we do everything we could as a country to save this person? And I don't just mean from a government perspective, but I also mean about what it means to be a member of a community, right? To be a good neighbor, to care about people that you don't know because we have a shared destiny and a shared stake in each other, uh, as Governor Patrick used to say. And so. Um, that was the second reason. The third was what I had mentioned earlier, which is I, it quickly became clear to me that the biggest burden of the storytelling was going to be at the local level. And if I could drive some traffic and some attention to this local storytelling, um, that that was going to be a priority to lift up local news. And so, um, you know, that's really what got me into a regular rhythm. And then 
almost immediately it became clear that I was not the only person that was looking for something like this and that there was an audience. And, you know, it's it sort of grown exponentially. I think initially I probably didn't hit a thousand followers until two months in. And then, you know, now today we're at 117,000. So, um, you know, it it's grows by about 500 or 600 folks a day. I should have said at the outset, congratulations for that. And I mean that in the, in the, in the broadest sense that I think, um, congratulations to everyone who participates in it. You know, I, I mean, an important thing to say, by the way, because my experience of this has probably been the most gratifying part of doing it is that it actually feels like a community. It's it is. really, uh, for everything we all say about and deservedly say about how toxic social media is, we seem to have at least thus far found a corner of the internet where people are kind to each other and compassionate and they cry with each other and they're, they mourn with each other and they share their stories with each other. And, uh, you know, that would be no small thing in any environment, but in an environment where we are so isolated right now, it's really, uh, you can feel that it's powerful. And look, I don't have any, um, my imagination hasn't convinced me that I'm doing something that's changing the world, but I do think that for this very small little corner of folks and the 300 families who I've heard from directly asking to have their loved one's story shared, that mm -hmm. there is something in this communal experience that is meaningful. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today I'm talking to Alex Goldstein, the founder of Faces of COVID. And you can get your questions in directly on YouTube Live for Alex if you'd like to do that, or you can just put them up on Twitter, which we're keeping an eye on, and we'll try to get those, those questions answered. You can also um, email them to me directly. Sometimes people like to do that. I'm at sgk23 at drexel.edu. Alex, um, I won't ask you to sort of give up all of your techniques um, here, but I would be interested to know how you go about finding the obituaries that you choose to share, the life stories that you choose to share. Yeah, so um, the the process is really, they're, they're kind of being sourced from three primary areas. The first is from news, like journalistic pieces that are written by a local reporter or a national reporter in some cases. Um, that I'm identifying through just sort of a daily search effort, right? Uh, it's a, a step or two more dynamic than just a Google search, um, but because it's also knowing which outlets to look. And over time, you start to understand how different papers are approaching this process. Interestingly, one of the things that I um, have observed is that local TV affiliates have really stepped up in a lot of the storytelling. Oftentimes, I think I've probably shared an equal number of local TV stories about folks who have passed away from COVID as I have from, you know, print reporters, which I was not expecting necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, the second source that is from obituaries that are placed in the newspaper by families in which they self identify as having lost their loved one to COVID because what I do not want to do is put anybody in a position where I'm stating as a fact, uh, you know, how their loved one died out of some kind of conjecture. 
if the family is self-identifying, then I will share those stories. And I find those just in the obituary pages of, of papers across the country. And then more and more often now than ever, uh, the last bucket is really coming from families who send them to us directly. I created a, a form submission form about a, three weeks ago and uh, have received hundreds of stories directly from families asking if their story, um, their loved one could be posted. And so that has, I said, more and more taking up um, a lot of the, the stories that were posting. And those ones are, in a lot of ways, are some of the most powerful because families are giving a testimonial sort of directly to the faces of COVID audience, which uh, it gets a lump in your throat very quickly. I'm fascinated by your insight about local news that in the retreat of local newspapers that the local TV stations have stepped up a little bit at this time. And then they, so you watch the news, the little news spots that are posted and then sometimes they are also transcribed there. How do you do that? Yeah, you know, a lot of them will do accompanying sto written stories that go with them. So that makes it the easiest to spot. But you know, what I've learned is that there's certain TV affiliates that are just going all in on this idea of mm -hmm. we need to tell as many of these stories as possible. Same thing on the print side. There will be some outlets that have no interest in it and don't cover it. And then there will be some that are doing a story a day. You know, the Des Moines Register did a massive effort on their storytelling, which is really powerful. Uh, the um, New Orleans uh, Times-Picayune, the Detroit Free Press, yeah. papers that just went so far above and beyond did hundreds of profiles of people who died. And then, yeah, TV affiliates. There's a TV affiliate. I, I don't know off the top of my head exactly which one it is, but it's in San Antonio, Texas, one of the mm -hmm. network affiliates. And I, they must have done 50 stories. And this is actually interviewing family members and cutting a package and like really. Uh, so the, they're, it's really an editorial decision. And by the way, I wouldn't hate it if one of the outcomes of this effort, because we're followed by a lot of journalists, uh, gratefully, um, is to influence some of those newsroom conversations around doing devoting 10% more resource to this type of storytelling, I think could have a really meaningful impact. Can you spot some trends in the the kinds of choices that they make? I mean, obviously, if it's if it's families who are paying, it's a paid obituary, or if they're coming from the funeral homes or uh, legacy.com, these other kinds of sites, that's that's one thing. But if somebody's having to make an editorial decision about which COVID life stories to tell, uh, you probably uniquely in the United States have spent more time noting the commonalities and the kinds of themes that are that are showing up. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest observations are, um, you know, on one hand, I see that I, I think the biggest trend is that if a family really wants to talk about what they just went through, which is not something that every family is going to want to do, uh, understandably. And you know, these are folks have gone through serious trauma. And so getting in front of a TV camera or doing a Zoom interview just, you know, is probably the last thing that many of them want to do. But a lot of them, I think, feel a responsibility to um, speak out about mistakes that were made or, you know, lack of PPE or, uh, folks who were forced to work or didn't have health insurance uh, because their employer laid them off, you know, those types of stories. When those families want to speak, I think I've found that they tend to get coverage. I think on the other side, a lot of the stories that get covered are the ones in which there's some sort of official notification that somebody had passed away, which then translates into a news story. So, for example, teachers in uh, public schools in particular 
Uh, there's been a lot of teachers who have died of COVID and those stories tend to get covered pretty regularly. Nurses and doctors, hospitals are you know, making announcements daily about losing healthcare workers. Um, police and firefighters, you know, public service oriented workers like that who are on the front lines, EMTs, those are all stories that I think are pretty widely covered um, because number one, I think we just sort of have come to pay attention to those fields during times of crisis, but also because there is somebody at the other end of the line that is able to confirm that um, you know, that, that happened. I was uh, talking the other, texting the other day with the fire chief of this town down in Texas, because uh, we had shared a story about one of his firefighters and um, I was just really, he sent me like every single photo that he could find from the wow. funeral, just like so eager to tell the story of this brother of his who had died in the line of duty. And that's, those are the moments that kind of sustain this whole thing because it's, uh, it's unbelievably sad to sit here day in, day out and do this. Um, and I don't think I'm doing anything heroic. I think what I'm doing is, forcing myself to keep reading, right? And to keep bearing witness. And it's, um, you know, when you see that that means something to folks, it really, uh, I think makes this, um, underscores why it's gotta keep going. I, I'm gonna ask you this question that I get asked a lot, which is, you know, how do you do a, how do you do this every day? Um, and I have my own answers for that, but I, I really like to know. Um, I guess, like, how are you doing? Like, and and how do you do this every day? Um, you know, the especially just like, and as I imagine you do too. Like, we have we have day jobs um, that we have responsibilities uh, for. I I, <laughs> I don't uh, I don't know an easy answer to that, other than to say that I just literally cannot imagine getting up and not having the first thing I do each day, opening my laptop and starting this, my morning research. Um, especially when the urgency of bearing witness is probably higher now than it's been at any point during the pandemic. Um, you know, I, I think that the, and then I look at it and I say, all right, so 243,000 people have died. Um, we've told 3,000 plus stories. So we've barely scratched the surface on like a little more than 1% of these. And so if I want people to, if I want to be relentless in helping people understand the scale and scope of this, I got to keep going. Um, it's just, it's not even really a question. Like it's just, I'm going to keep going. And uh you know, I'll find a way. But yeah, you know, we I have my moments where especially you read something that like really punches you in the gut and you're like, I really don't want to do this anymore because it's heartbreaking. But um, that's quickly outweighed by what I think is the necessity of keeping us in front of people as long as possible. I read uh, an obituary uh, on July 1st that has haunted me um, a young man named Sibon McAndrew, which was uh, this appeared, it appeared in the Reno Gazette Journal on May 1st. And um, it was also the day I had Lori Peak and Alice Fothergill on as guests and they're um, tremendous sociologists who write about, um, they've written about Hurricane Katrina and they've written about the ways that the disaster sort of affected children 
and as those children got older. So really thinking about the disaster and the life course of people. So not just about death, but about those who survive. And, and that one really stuck with me because it, the way it was written really focused a lot about brothers and sisters and how they had tried to keep their loved one alive or, and had a community. I mean, it was really the whole kind of every facet that's been terrible about COVID, learning about it, trying to get healthcare, trying to stay connected, trying to say goodbye. And then later in the obituary, you learn that there had also been their mother had died from domestic violence earlier in the year. And so it opens up something much bigger than COVID. You learn about the struggles in America from this mm -hmm. one story. Um, I don't know. I didn't ask you to prepare anything ahead of time, but is there are there one or two that have really haunted you? Yeah, I, I I don't know that I would use. I mean, there are ones that haunt me. Um, the ones that I I think about all the time really run a spectrum of different kinds of stories, right? There's because you know one of the things I think you just sort of alluded to is because of the fact that this virus is everywhere and is killing people in all 50 states at the same time, but yet it's happening at a time when we are literally required to stay within the four walls of our house and be isolated from each other. It means that we're deferring the experience of mourning communally, right? It's being, every single obituary has the same one of the, each one has the same line in it. It's like usually three or four paragraphs down and it says, due to COVID-19, the memorial service has been delayed until blank, right? And that's, by the way, that is also the case if your mother or father dies of cancer or Parkinson's or something else in the middle of this, all of this is being deferred. And so the types of things that we usually have, you know, to come together and to process, um, they're just not there. And so people are suffering quietly at home. The other thing that I've experienced though, is that if you look at these stories, you also get this unbelievable sense of how beautiful and resilient and diverse and passionate uh, and extraordinary the American people are. I mean, I've had this tour of every single state. And by the way, it kills me that the my first real tour of this type is with people who have died, but their stories are spectacular. I mean, I, I say this a lot that the, you know, these are not household names. There's, there's, I'm not really sharing celebrities, but if you're the barber who died in Detroit, like you may literally be the mayor of that block. And in that block, you are the most important person in the world. And when that person overnight disappears, the effect of that is hard to even imagine. And now multiply that 240,000 times. You know, the, you mentioned the story you read at the outset, um, mm -hmm. veterans, yeah. we featured a lot of stories of different veterans. And, you know, I look at these stories and I said, here's, you know, I posted one yesterday of a guy here in Lexington who literally stormed the beaches in Normandy, fought the Nazis all the way through to the battle of the bulge came home, started a small business, raised a beautiful family. It was a Photoshop in Cambridge. This guy must've been the greatest person in the world to have a cup of coffee with. And then to see that this is what takes him, something that could have been prevented, that we could have done more to stop. Mm -hmm. That's where 
I get haunted, right? Mm -hmm. There is no inevitability to this. We have accepted that it's inevitable. Our leaders have tried to suggest to us that people are dispensable because this is inevitable, but it's not and it never was. And I think that is what I struggle with is when I read these beautiful stories and I see a light that gets snuffed out, I get angry and I get sad and I say, it didn't have to be this bad. And um, you know, I think that's what I struggle with the most. The other thing I'll say is that obviously healthcare workers, you know, firefighters, frontline workers, um, who do this as a out of a sense of service and because it's their what they train for in life, you know, those are really, really hard. And also more and more seeing stories of people in their teens, in their 20s, in their 30s, um, you know, and I, I am so tired of this line about, well, did they have a pre-existing condition? Who, uh, yeah. who cares, yeah. right? If that was your kid, is that what you'd be asking? You know, and, and that's, uh, so it's, there's, there's, I will tell you though, I recognize all of these names. Like when I see them pop up somewhere else, I remember every single story we've posted. Um, and uh, I sort of, I don't know, it's really, uh, I get emotional thinking about it because um, I, it's so obvious to me how much longer this is gonna have to continue. Um, and that we're really, I feel like in some ways we're not even at the halfway point. So, so you mentioned the anger and I just wanna, linger with that for a second. One wouldn't think that naming the names of people who die in a pandemic across the entire United States and in territories and around the world, one wouldn't necessarily think that that's a political act. And yet, in this year, it has been. The the absence of that from this administration, the absence of empathy, has also been a source of great injury to people, I think. I, I, I guess I, my question to you is, to what extent have you been surprised that grieving and memorializing is perceived as political in 2020? Uh, I mean, nothing surprises me in 2020, especially in the political sphere, like literally nothing. Um, but... You know, I, I, I feel like a lot of times I've been reminding folks that we need to be clear with ourselves that it's not as if it accidentally became politicized, right? It's not as if it just sort of through apathy and whatever people kind of naturally went to their political tribe and began uh, couching things in different terms. This was not accidental. This was deliberate. This has been a deliberate effort by the top tier of American government from the, the, the Oval Office, um, intentionally trying to make people believe that COVID itself is a political topic, that the types of people who are dying from this are actually not the people who are dying from this, that the numbers are inflated, that the outcomes for long haulers and other folks aren't real, that the uh, phony cures are the easy way out, that masks are a sign of weakness, that the people who are dying are nobodies. I mean, it is the, when you just barrage people with that who are already susceptible to the message, then it takes hold really quickly. And so I, this would be hard enough to have a real honest conversation with each other about this virus if we didn't have that, right? Because we're already so isolated and that alone, 
I think makes it so hard. We're hiding in our homes for the most part, right? And you know, we're trying to avoid each other on the sidewalk and we're running in and out when we have to be indoors and hiding behind masks because we have to to stay safe. That would be hard enough to have a conversation about a pandemic in that environment. But when someone is directly and deliberately tipping the scales, then it's becomes then it starts to feel impossible. And I think the you get to the point where we're at now, where we have the country living in two realities. But unfortunately, the way this works with science is that it will catch up to you regardless of your political persuasions. And as you look at what's happening across the Midwest and what's happening North Dakota and South Dakota, places where governors have been parroting these BS talking points for months. I mean, there are real life consequences and blood on their hands for that. And we're going to have to deal with that for a long time. No, I wonder, you know, this, the denial, the conspiracy theories, the, you know, I, like you, I'm, I'm surprised sometimes when I'm still surprised by things. I have to say, I was genuinely surprised when I first learned about Sandy Hook truthers. And I won't even dignify the names of the people who were propagating that. Um, but that's a real aspect of our society now. And I don't think it's something that's going to go away. It's something this administration has tapped into as a lively, I think they thought was a powerful electoral force for them, just as you've very well described just now. Um, have you bumped up against that? Have you been the target um, yet of some of that bile and and I guess how do you how do you see this country right now at a time in which naming the names of people who've died of a pandemic is seen as a political act and potentially attacked as not even truthful? Yeah, I so I, I'm gonna use the word not yet, the word you just used, yet, because the answer is no, not yet. Um, but that's probably because I it's mostly flown under the radar, right? Um, you know, I I, I think uh, I have been really moved by how positive people are and the way they, you know, in the entire eight months, there's probably five people who have tried to make some comment about things being, you know, not what they seem or argue that it wasn't COVID. It was because they were overweight or, you know, like you know, nonsense like that. But for the vast majority of the times, you know, we post usually eight or nine times a day and overwhelmingly positive every single time, which is really, I think, a testament to the fact that, you know, there are the vast majority of people in this country are good people. I genuinely believe that. And especially when confronted with the loss of your neighbor, I think people feel that. The thing is, we've been conditioned for a bunch of years now to embrace this distrust and fear mongering and individualism that says we're all on our own. Mm. And that is corrosive to the point where what I think faces of COVID has the potential to do is remind you that people's lived experiences are a lot like yours. You ask me which ones make me emotional. Oftentimes it's the, the ones that I remind me of myself or they remind me of my parents and I don't have to know people to see my family in these people or to see myself in them. And I think that is something I want people to embrace from this, which is that even people on the other side of the country who grew up totally different from you, we've got something in common here. And if we can pull in the same direction, a lot of good things are going to come from it. But I also acknowledge that, you know, I'm not naive to think that there isn't a small group of folks that's now kind of a growing minority in this country um, that 
it's really hard to deprogram them from some of these thoughts. And I'll give you a really troubling example I saw, and I won't use any of the names from it, but there was a story I posted. It was a young man in his 20s um, who had died of COVID. And I posted the story and didn't know totally how to handle something I saw in the story, which is if you read down a few graphs, um, this individual's mother is quoted and she says, you know, we lost our son. He was like our entire world. He's our, you know, pride and joy. Um, but all of that said, I think the numbers are overinflated. Wow. That was in the story. It was in the story. And that was one of those moments where I realized mm -hmm. that for a certain group that has just inhaled so much of this toxicity, I don't know how to pull them back. Yeah. Because if you can't, if you can't see your own child in this, right. Um, I don't, you know, if that doesn't shatter this myth that's around you, um, I don't know how to do that. But what I do know is that for the vast majority of people, if I focus on them, I can, we can build muscle around empathy. Yeah, right? absolutely. We can do something there. And that's, sort of where I want to spend my time. I have no interest in battling with hoaxers, whatever just doesn't do anything for me. Just a waste of my time. So that one that you just mentioned, you posted it. Yeah. So I think that is extraordinary. And uh, because that's where the empathy has to be located. I her, think. Her son, and by the way, I do not take anything away from the fact that this grieving mother is having the worst moment of her entire life, right? And I also feel that even if there's things that I see in the story that are, you know, sort of ideologically reprehensible to me, that doesn't mean that her son's life didn't have dignity and isn't worthy of all of us, you know, seeing his face and looking at his, you know, reading his name and hearing about who he was. And, you know, the, I've also, I've gotten a little bit of, you know, feedback that you know, every now and then I'll, you know, there's a Republican lawmaker who dies or something like that. Um, you know, there was a, there was a city councilor in Tennessee who died, who was a big anti-masker guy. That's mm -hmm. And he passed away. And I posted his story um, with any other story. And I did put a note that said he had been advocating for anti-mask policies. Cause I think that it's, it's an important piece of context. Um, but so I'm not, I don't want to totally ignore it, but at the same time, that is the, from my experience is the exception to the rule. And it's not where I plan to focus it because what I also don't want to do is breed a counter narrative that says that the anti-mask people are the only, like, you know, I think a lot of what's happening right now in this country in terms of spreading, it's not because of anti-mask people running around breathing on people. It's because all of us have let our guard down. And so Absolutely. I don't want to give people the easy out that you can just blame the boogeyman when mm -hmm. we have responsibility too. You know, I've been doing a couple things that I probably wouldn't have done in April, right? Mm -hmm. and, sure. uh, and so this is a, a gut check for all of us, I think right now. I appreciate that, uh, that you posted that and, and, and have wrestled with that myself, uh, Herman Cain, for example. And, and, but I think in the end, that's all part of this story and we're not even yet halfway through this. Right. And people change their minds about things. I mean, I, that's one of the things about, you know, America that, that I remain hopeful about 
Um, people seem absolutely committed to one. I mean, this is kind of, in a sense, kind of the genius of democracy. People can be absolutely committed to a set of ideas and then they can take in new information or something transformative can happen in their life. Like a loved one could die of a pandemic or they could get sick and then they can change their ideas. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, the, it's such a powerful point. And I, I posted a story yesterday that made me think about this. It was uh, at the end of our Veterans Day thing. I, I posted a story about a young man who died, um, who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan on multiple tours. And he came back. He was in his 30s. Um, and somebody sent me a direct message and wanted to make sure I realized that the person I had posted was like a big time anti-mask guy. And I looked into it and he in the midst of being sick, he sort of recanted his experience. Mm -hmm. He did a Facebook live video and he said, this thing's real. Like I messed up and I'm sorry. Yeah. Like here now. Okay. If, if I'm one of these folks that I'm trying to persuade, who's the more effective communicator, him or the liberal Jewish guy from Boston who is going to pop into your feed and scold you about being right. an idiot. Right. Seriously. I mean, you know, the, that, that is, uh, if we just did, if we try to maintain that people can't change their minds, we're also losing one of the most effective ways of changing other people's minds, which is when that happens, sort of leveraging those voices. So. want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Alex Goldstein, the founder of Faces of COVID. And you described a minute ago, um, you used the word witness. And just to come back to that for, for a second, um, how has that witness changed you? And I guess, you know, sort of tagging onto that a little bit, what do you leave open as options for yourself, because mm -hmm. if you're planning to keep doing this and keep the witness up, it is going to change you as a person. Yeah, I, I. So on one hand, I think I have found it to be affirming of a approach to politics and policy, and just like the basic tenets of a social contract that we're supposed to have in this country. It's been affirming of that, right? because it's been affirming because the vast majority of people who I'm interacting with are feeding their souls off of sharing in some collective mourning and feeling a sense of responsibility to each other, right? And it has also been affirming in that I long believed that just centering ourselves in abstractions as talking points and you know trying to move people or persuade people around policy and action requires more than just data and statistics. Data and statistics is a critical component to establishing credibility, but it is not the way to connect with people emotionally and that we have to be able um, to do both. And so it's been affirming of centering the lived experiences of real people is one of the most effective ways to build community and to make people see that, you know, that stake in each other. Um, so that's been affirming. I think on the other hand, the Room Raider 
Twitter handle started almost the same day that my Twitter handle started. And it's at 350,000 followers and growing at a much faster clip. I don't have any illusions that the, this is, I don't know that this will ever be something that is mm -hmm. um, going to become the sort of go-to source or really move the needle in any dramatic way. And I think that the, um, there are still a lot of folks who are very apathetic to this. It's not necessarily that they're negatively inclined, but they're not ready um, to, to bear witness. And I need to think to myself about how do you bring people in? Um, how do you get people there? How do I feel like, you know, when I think about what it's been like the last week of the election, how do I talk to someone on the other side? How do I bring them along with me instead of just beating the hell out of them verbally? You know, I don't know. Those are some tough questions for me. Um, you know, I, I think the long-term plan for this is I want to keep telling these stories even after the pandemic is over. I, I think that um, history is being written, like as we speak, you're a history professor, right? This is, you know, the way in which we remember this pandemic is being written now. And I want to be a part of that. I don't want anyone to be able to look back and say it wasn't as bad as the legend says that the, you know, I, I want that when people look back on this, they see names and faces. And I think that means to keep going and keep pushing. So the just to stay with that for a second, the memorialization aspect of this, um, I had a great conversation uh, with Shannon Mattern and Aaron Simmons and Emily Bow on October 21st. And we talked about um, we talked about memorials and they really expanded my mind because I still had this idea that there would be all these digital projects because of the pandemic. Right. I mean, we can't really go and be in places. People are doing things here and there, but people are not even able to have normal funerals. And that that would then sort of merge into more traditional memorial modes as it gets safer. And that ultimately there will be statues and, and the names and, and things like that. And they kind of pulled me up on that and, and very politely and kindly said, well, is that what we need more of in America right now? Do, do we need more statues and and names or do we need healthcare? Right. Or, or, or can how can we continue? How can we go deeper with the digital? How can we make a living memorial? And and I immediately thought of you and I thought about faces of COVID when they were saying that. And I thought this is the probably this is the memorial. I don't know if you have thoughts about how this merges into a sort of longer term memorial project, but maybe this is it. I you know I it could be. I I I think that they're making a really important point, though, um, which is the especially you know, one thing you and I haven't really talked about um, that I think is it comes through in so many of the stories that I've um, that I've shared is that as much as it is geographically true that no one has been spared the consequences of COVID-19, um, it is also true that certain communities have been disproportionately impacted, particularly black and brown communities across the country, and devastatingly so. And the if we can't, it, it would be doing a disservice to this entire effort if I didn't do my best to point that out from time to time, because the disparities and inequities that led to a point that made those communities more susceptible to this virus. Mm -hmm. COVID-19 by decades. 
And so if we can use this as an entry point to really do, you know, she talked about healthcare, right? Like if we can look, you know, through the lens of systemic inequality that has led to these types of outcomes, that would be a powerful enduring legacy of this. But you can't do that if you're not honest about the storytelling about who is dying. And to say out loud that black and brown people have a much higher likelihood of dying at a younger age of COVID-19 for any number of reasons. I, well, I don't mean to linger on this, but the, um, you know, one of the things I found really powerful uh, and disturbing was the Boston Globe is my hometown newspaper. I love the Boston Globe. I get it hard copy every day. And uh, on the peak of the pandemic, one of the worst days we had, there was a 12 page obituary section in the back of the paper. And I'm looking through this and people are sharing it on social media and on Twitter. And I'm kind of going through page at a time and it's heartbreaking. You're looking, it's like every single person died of COVID page after page, mm -hmm. 12 pages. But when you get to the end of those 12 pages, one thing is really clear. This is not the full story because every single one of those faces save one or two was white. And we know that that is an important part of how we tell this story, but we can't just rely on traditional obituaries and hope that newsrooms give the resources. We got to find these stories right. sometimes to tell them accurately and to really allow people to understand what happened here. Same thing with what happening on Indian reservations across the country. Um, you know, it's uh, these are communities that are dealing with those same types of issues. And um, that I can't understate sort of how important that part of the storytelling is. You know that, I mean, thank you for lingering on that. That's such an important, point, it puts extra pressure on you as the sort of meta editor. And I wonder, I mean, do you do you strive to um, post stories, the balance of your posting? Do you try to match the sort of the, the inequalities that we see in the, in the United States? Because, you know, the numbers are staggering. I was reading some of them yesterday. You know the the overrepresentation of African American and Latinx and and Native Americans um, disabilities. I mean these communities which already suffer disaster every day across America to then have this disaster compounded. Um, you try to how do you meet that in terms of your curating? Yeah, you know I I think it's not that I try to meet certain you know statistical boundaries or anything like that. It's more that I. Um, I'm sort of always aware and being sensitive to making sure that I am pulling from many different types of sources, right? Because it looks like if I only relied upon legacy.com obituaries, this would skew very much older and whiter, right? If I uh, only did TV news stories, I might overly skew on public service folks and not, you know, the grocery store worker right, or the farmer or something like that. Um, and I think one of the best ways to be able to source um, a much more diverse sampling of what's happening out there is by giving people the ability to submit their own stories. Um, you know, I think that that's been really important part of it because um, the it brings down the barrier to participation in this, um, that you don't have to have had the resources or means to either run a paid obituary or convinced a reporter to cover it or hope that they found it or something, right? That there's another way to do it. And I think that's really helped. Um, and, you know, but I, the, it, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to be as accurate as possible, right? Mm -hmm. I just want the information to be right. 
and to allow people to come to their own conclusions based on what they're seeing. So can you just, um, we're almost up on time. I want to make sure people know how to get those stories to you. I've put the um, Twitter um, handle for faces of COVID here. It's, it's just at faces of COVID. Yep. Um, and that's where people should find you. Yeah. So the, um, there's a pinned tweet right now at the top of the feed that has the link to the submission form. So okay. um, if you want to share it with others, if you have a story to submit yourselves, by the way, it doesn't have to be somebody that you knew if it's something that you've identified as right. somebody who passed away in your community and you just want to share it and make sure I've got it. Um, you can do it through that means. As well. Something interesting you said at the top of our discussion uh, about what it's like to work in a campaign. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you're good at it and things happen fast in politics. And now you're actually like <laughs> in the circle of trust and you're working with the, the governor. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you can't relate that to the, this place you find yourself in now, you've been extremely modest there and, and I appreciate that, but you're doing a lot of work and you're giving a space for people um, to share and to read and to come to it on their own terms, which is important. Um, my sense is that, and if you look at history, if you look at September 11, um, the enduring importance of the uh, portraits of grief that the New York Times did, if you look at Katrina and the enduring importance of memory projects around that, that treat these disasters as slow disasters that are ongoing and unfolding long after the last person is is buried. And, and with COVID, we won't even know how to draw that hard line probably ever. Right. Yeah. Um, this could be a life work for you. You know, uh, it's it's crossed my mind. And I I think that the question for me will be right now, this is I more than anything, I want to be a like blaring red light on your dashboard that we've got a serious problem and that this is not over, right? I'm just trying to get through this wave, right? I'm just trying to get through what's in front of me. I think long-term, you know, there's gonna be some important questions. And I think that's also a time to consider bringing in other partners and uh, possibly academic partners or other places to really have a conversation about how this lives and breathes, you know, because it's not sustainable for it to be one guy doing it out of his living room, um, you know, for the next 20 years, nor do I think that having it exclusively live on Twitter is necessarily the right way to remember this. And so, um, you know, I've had some preliminary conversations with uh, an academic institution near and dear to my heart about whether they might be able to actually house some type of archive and bring some real resources to it. Um, and I also have aspirations around the storytelling piece um, to raise a fund that would basically underwrite the cost of having a freelance reporter write your family's story for you mm. and then giving us the ability to share it on our own platform as almost like our own newsroom. Um, mm. Those are things that I kept saying, well, I'll worry about that after the election. Now I'm after the election and I'll yeah. say, I'll worry about that in 2021. <laughs> so um, I, it's not, not, neither of those are shovel ready, but it is, it is definitely weighing on me to figure out, um, you know, what, uh, how does this sustain itself over time? Well, are there Alex Goldsteins in uh, Chile and Brazil and South Korea and Japan? I mean, is this a phenomenon in other places? You know, I, every now and then someone will send me a message and say, can you do one of these, you know, in the UK and can you do one of these? And I'm like, I'm barely getting through, <laughs> you know, doing one for the United States. Uh, I would love it if somebody uh, did pursue that. And I think that there, 
um, is value in that. And I think, uh, you know, so hopefully there is. Um, and, you know, I think what, to your point earlier, I actually think that the, the, the expression about, around this is just beginning. You know, the fact that I started mine on the day, the first day or first five days of the pandemic is just more, uh, you know, because I was taking the initiative, but that <clears throat> doesn't make me any more creative than somebody who comes up with their effort tomorrow. And so I suspect we will see much, much more. You know, I also have this feeling, and maybe I'm wrong, because so much of the morning has been deferred, that when we can step out of our homes and we can be together again, mm -hmm. we're going to have a lot to work through together. And Absolutely. I think that we're going to see a lot that comes out of that. I mean, just consider the fact that there's going to be double the amount of memorials next year, triple the amount if you include people that died of a, you know, another cause, people who died of COVID, who have deferred their memorials to next year, and then you have whoever would normally die you know, in that year, I mean, there is going to be a lot of grief that is being deferred. And there's, there's, I think some beautiful things will probably come out of that in this kind of digital memorial space. Um, but I also think that there's gonna be a lot of heartache, too, as people come to terms with this. I want to make sure that we know people can how they can find um, your work faces of COVID on Twitter, and you have a GoFundMe link up there. Um, so people can uh, help support this work and also on uh, they can link to your um, google doc where they can make suggestions um, as well so there's a lot of ways to interact with the work you're doing yeah one of the um one note on the uh the um gofundme is that most of those funds have been going to the creation of some digital video memorials um I don't know if you've had a chance to actually see any of these. I was thinking I could send you a link because they're only three minutes long, but the um, it's a, um, I've done three of them. I've done one on firefighters, one on teachers and one on healthcare workers. Mm. Uh, to me, putting it into a di digital video production just has the ability mm. to make things a little bit more um, powerful at scale mm. to really see uh, the scope of this beyond just kind of one story. So, you know, I'll, uh, I won't bother now, but there's those you can find those in the feed uh, throughout, and that's where most of the funding has gone. Great, Alex Goldstein. I hope that uh, we'll get a chance to talk again on COVID calls. I'd like to find out, um, as you said, as you go into 2021, um, how the project is evolving and um, how your thoughts about it are evolving. And just to say thank you for for all you're doing. I think it's tremendous and very much needed right now. Well, thank you for all that you're doing to sustain this day over day. Uh, is not in a, a small task either, and you're performing a really important public service. So thanks again for uh, for having me on. I'd like to remind everybody you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, and we'll be back tomorrow at 5 o'clock. And just to thank Alex uh, one more time, stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.